Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy and I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope all is well or as well as it can be and I appreciate you listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you tune in. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Dan Sinekin, author of a new book called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature. So conglomeration of publishing was happening with more intensity in the 1970s, and it coincided with a change in management philosophy in how corporations are run in the United States. That meant that the people running these conglomerates who were acquiring these publishing houses needed to prioritize economic growth. And so the word that started coming down to the publishers and then to their editors was, you need quarterly growth. How are we going to make that happen in a chaotic business like publishing? Okay, that was Dan Sinekin. His new book is called Big Fiction available from Columbia University Press. Big Fiction is an exploration of how tectonic changes in the publishing industry have impacted the entire world of literature, from literary form to fiction to what it means to be an author. This is a fascinating book. It functions in a variety of ways, including as a sweeping history of the modern publishing business, as well as an inside look at how the business used to run versus how it runs now in this era of conglomeration. Dan Sinekin examines the impacts of conglomeration on mass market books, trade publishers, nonprofits, 
and indie presses. He also writes about how women and people of color have attempted to navigate these big shifts in publishing, often to creative effect. A really interesting conversation with Dan Sinekin. That is coming up momentarily. Before we get going, just a quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at Substack. It's free. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you enjoy this program and you want to help keep it going into the future, join the Patreon community over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There is apparel. You can get a book club subscription, a coffee mug, all of that stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lin. The Night Parade bills itself as a speculative memoir. And in it, Jamie Nakamura Lin is braiding her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other difficult topics, driven by a single question. How do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lin, available from Mariner Books. All right, so today's guest, once again, is Dan Sinekin. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. It is available from Columbia University Press. Dan Sinekin is an assistant professor of English at Emory University with a courtesy appointment in quantitative theory and methods. He is the author of another book entitled American Literature and the Long Downturn. That was published in 2020. His writing has appeared all over the place, including in publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Rumpus, Dissent, and elsewhere. I'm very pleased to have had the chance to meet Dan Sinekin and to talk with him about his new book. So. Let's get to the conversation. Here I am with Dan Sinekin, and one more time, his new book is called Big Fiction. Publishing looked very different in the 1950s than it does in the 2020s. And one of the major reasons it looks different is because of conglomeration. In the 1950s, most publishing houses were much, much, much smaller than they are today. They were largely independent. They were run by the founders or their heirs in many cases. And what began happening in the 1960s is you had large corporations who were looking to expand by acquiring or merging with other companies that were in a different business. And that's when companies began acquiring these small independent publishing houses. And when you have two companies in different businesses that join together, they form a conglomerate. Um, oftentimes what ended up happening in the 60s and 70s is these small publishing houses ended up in much, much, much larger conglomerates 
like RCA, which was a massive company back in the 70s, uh, making TVs and working in the defense industry, owned Random House. Or you'd have uh, Gulf and Western, which became Paramount, owned Simon and Schuster. Um, and so you started to have all what was once a wide range of independent publishing houses consolidated into fewer and fewer conglomerates, so that by the year 2000, there were six, they came to call them the big six conglomerates that controlled something like 80% of mainstream publishing in the United States. And then in 2013, that became the big five that we have today. Well, we have similar activity happening in a lot of different business verticals. Like the story you just told sounds similar to what you hear about with respect to the news media, television news media. There really are only a few hands controlling so much of what we read and what we see. And I think like from the outside looking in as somebody with a limited understanding of the way big time corporate maneuvering works, the idea that a company, a large corporate interest with absolutely zero intimacy with literature or real love of literature even, would suddenly find itself in control of major publishing houses. That's, that seems like a recipe for disaster. It seems bad for books. I mean, do you agree? Like the results with, with in terms of the way that the the process has shaken out over the past 60 or 70 years, mm -hmm. do you think that the effect has been net negative? It's a great question. And when I started the process of researching this book, the first thing I wanted to do was refuse to answer that question because this was how everyone was talking about conglomeration. Everyone was talking about conglomeration that I saw as whether or not it had been terrible for books or whether actually on the contrary, it had been quite good. And in order to come to any sort of judgment, I felt like I needed to defer judgment about the goodness or the badness for books to try to dig in and explore what happened. And what I found was, I think, a much more interesting story than whether it has been simply good or bad for books. Instead, I found that people, writers, editors, agents, people involved in the business who love books at all various levels have found interesting, creative, fascinating, and fabulous ways to deal with the different constraints that conglomeration has imposed over the years and have created new forms of literature that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So I think we have great books being published by conglomerate houses in 2023. At the same time that I think conglomeration has induced conservatism in the kinds of books that can be published in all sorts of different kinds of ways. So I don't think it's an, a question you can answer easily and say, oh, it's been terrible. Oh, it's been great. There's a deep, layered, complex story that most of us would rather not tell because it's so much easier just to say, oh yeah, conglomeration, big business, horrible. There's more to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, what's one of the key takeaways from this book is how complex and how layered it is and how difficult it is to arrive at a single understanding of what the implications are. You know, it's a, it's a complicated question and it's a complicated answer, it feels like, because it's so big and because the consequences are so vast. You could take, you know, yeah. 
I mean, take take Simon and Schuster, which is a massive one of the big five. It's got many, many, many imprints. So it simultaneously has an imprint that publishes some of the most heinous folks who are connected to the Trump presidency and makes a lot of money on political memoirs. But it also owns Scribner, which is one of the most important literary publishers working today, publishes Kiese Lehman, Jasmine Ward. You know, those are writers I have immense respect for. You can't say Simon and Schuster is just one thing. Right, right. That's a very good point. And in terms of tracing the history of conglomeration, I believe like the moment of origin, insofar as you can actually put a finger on it, is 1960 with Random House purchasing Knopf. Is that right? Yeah, there's a there. Random House purchases Knopf and Times Mirror, which is a newspaper company in LA, acquires New American Library, which people might not be so familiar with, but at the time was the most respected mass market house in America doing really great work. So those both happened then. There's almost like, it feels like as time progresses and conglomeration metastasizes, if I may, if I may use that word, uh, it, it almost feels like cartoonish because it's like such and such buys such and such, and then such and such buys both of those. And then another thing comes in and buys both of those. It, it just feels like it keeps layering and the money keeps getting bigger and maybe more impersonal. And for people out there who are listening, who might be writerly, who might not have like a super strong interest in business or much business acumen, which I think describes many writers, you know, in terms of the consequences of conglomeration at a nuts and bolts business level, I think it's important to flag that when a conglomerate buys a publisher that was previously family owned and operated, suddenly there are constraints put upon the editors and the leaders of that publishing house that did not previously exist. Can you talk a little bit about what those are, like financially in terms of profit and loss and the way that the business operates? Right. So con- conglomeration of publishing was happening with more intensity in the 1970s, and it coincided with a change in management philosophy in how corporations are run in the United States. What I'm talking about is the shareholder value revolution, which after which those people running corporations began to see corporations as purely the legal fictions that they are uh, designed to increase the value for the shareholders who have invested in that company. That meant that the people running these conglomerates who were acquiring these publishing houses needed to prioritize economic growth. And so the word that started coming down to the publishers and then uh, to their editors was you need quarterly growth. How are we going to make that happen in a chaotic business like publishing? Books are hard to predict. It's hard to predict what's going to succeed. So mechanisms began to become institutionalized, like profit and loss forms. These are forms where an editor who's trying to acquire a book has to explain with the numbers why they think this acquisition is going to lead to the profit that the company needs it to make in order to hit its quarterly growth. Um, This was also became gradually more and more institutionalized through the use of comparative titles or what are called comps. This is a way of looking at three, usually it's three previous titles 
that have succeeded and comparing a new acquisition to those three titles to say this book is like those books. And so we can expect it to make this much money. Those started to be constraints that acquiring editors had to build into how they were thinking about making a list. And that changed the kind of books that they were able to acquire and the ways that writers had to think about what they were writing in order to become acquired. Well, it's interesting in your book, the ways in which you describe how writing and how writers adjusted to conglomeration kind of intuitively. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it was explicit, but a lot of this is just a reaction to the environment in which writers found themselves and continue to find themselves with respect to conglomeration, the demands of the marketplace, the challenges of making a living as a writer and trying to get your books out into the world. And there are, I mean, I'm, you, you know, I would be jumping around a little bit in terms of the way that the book is structured, but really interesting writing about, for example, Toni Morrison and the publication of Beloved and how that book, which I think the vast majority of readers understand as being about race and slavery and all this kind of stuff, is also a response to conglomeration and publishing because Toni Morrison, I think a lot of people know this, but not everybody, worked inside of a conglomerate publisher, maybe the preeminent conglomerate publisher at Random House, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a mouthful. But it's just really fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating aspects of the book is the reaction creatively by artists to assimilate and also sometimes to try to subvert or at least write subversively about conglomeration in their work that is ultimately published by a conglomerate. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's just really, I don't know. I don't know if there's a question in there, but if you have anything to add to that, it's just a really fascinating aspect of this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the fact that there are so many people who want to be writers and so many people who would love to be published by a well-resourced big five publishing house, and there are so many submissions that we need agents to be pre-filters to start filtering through. And then those agents are only able to get so many of their writers to get viewed by acquiring editors that the people who actually make it through the other side, who have succeeded and sold uh, work that the publishers want to champion, there's inevitably going to be a kind of sorting based on people are going to learn through a feedback mechanism of what makes it through, what succeeds, what gets and what's not getting through, what's not succeeding. And so writers, sociologists call it anticipatory socialization. That means what that means is that writers, whether or not they know it or not, I think so much of this happens unconsciously, but you're paying attention to who you want your peers to be. Who do you admire? What's the writing who's, who are, who's succeeding? And you want to be successful as a writer. So you're looking at the people who are successful and what are they doing in their writing to be successful? So people start learning from these decisions that are made by many, 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 many hands are deciding the success of these novels that are thus teaching writers how to learn how to write in a way that will work next. And so that's how I think about these feedback loops. Unconsciously inspiring writers to write 
Um, for instance, in the 1990s, we started to increasingly see literary writers adopting genre techniques. Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses is, for me, a key early example of this. And we also see people like involved in the industry. Think about the phrase, write what you know. This is something that writers are told, I mean, to the point that it's a cliche that that we can can kind of roll our eyes at, but it's also, there's a truth in it. And if you think about what are the fundamental material conditions of write what you know, what is a writer's life? Well, a part of a writer's professional life is interacting with their agent. It's interacting with their editor. It's interacting with the publishing house. And one of the, the things I'm trying to argue in the book is that write what you know means that more than any of us have thought allegories about what's going on in the publishing industry, qualities of, you know, the kind of struggles with getting oneself published, with getting the story one wants to tell that might not be the story one's editor one, one wants one to tell published. These kind of battles find their ways into the novels, sometimes surreptitiously, and it's fascinating to, to recognize that. Well, I mean, like with regard to Toni Morrison and Beloved, it's worth noting that she started writing this book just after she left Random House, right? She had been working there as an editor and doing all sorts of different battles internally to try to advocate for writers of color and to try to publish books that she believed in. And so in a work like Beloved, which, you know, a theme of which is like liberation, you start to see that you start to draw in your book the parallels, which I don't think are super evident to the casual reader. They don't realize that's what she was going through in her life at the time she launched into the writing of it, but it makes perfect sense in hindsight. I wouldn't have been able to make that argument myself had had she not really in in a in a in a foreword that she writes to a later edition. She really lays down some 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 hints to suggest the parallels herself between her experience as an editor at Random House and quitting her job and the moment when the character in the novel named Baby Suggs first experiences freedom from slavery in the North. And Toni Morrison quits her job and she's sitting at her house and she's, she's, she writes about this in, this in this foreword. She's overlooking the Hudson River and she's... She writes that she, she has this experience, this unsettling experience, and she's, she has this feeling, and she's not sure what it is. But it's not purely good or, or bad, but it's unsettling, and it's kind of giving her the sense of elation. And she finally realizes what it is, is she, she feels free. She feels free from the work of being an editor at a conglomerate publishing house where she, it, it, we should say, like, in unbelievably white industry where she was often one of the few black editors in the business where the, where Random House's list was as much as 95% white writers um, in the years that she was there. And now she's quit the job, quit the financial constraints of that job, the racial constraints of that job. And she has this sense of freedom. And then she says, enter beloved. That's what she writes. And the way that she writes about her sense of feeling free echoes 
how she writes about baby Suggs feeling freedom when she makes it to the north in her body, this unsettling feeling, this heart beating. Oh, that's my heart beating, my heart beating. And that's my heart is a free heart that's beating. And that blew my mind. Once I had the background, once I had read a lot about her time, I'd gone to Columbia uh, where the records, Random House's records are kept. And I'd gone through Toni Morrison's files in those archives. And I'd read through her memoranda. And I'd read through boxes of her rejections that she sent to people who'd sent her stuff. And I'd gotten a feel for her working life. And then I read that forward. And then I read the novel again. And it suddenly became incredibly clear what she was doing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, and what's interesting is that she was not alone. She was far from alone in terms of writers writing books in some cases very significant books that we know and that are widely celebrated i mean beloved is her greatest triumph uh but writers like percival everett joan didion uh walter mosley i mean there's a there's a bunch of them cataloged in your book whose work you can deconstruct in a similar fashion where you realize oh my god like some of it's unconscious but some of it becomes pretty explicit in terms of the ways in which uh, and then there, there's also Michael Crichton, who I think is like writing in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. where he's almost like, you know, writing towards conglomeration or valorizing the kind of patriarchal structures of, of uh, the publishing world and the conglomerate publishing world in particular. And then on a personal note, this book enlightened me to the history of autofiction and in particular, the reasons why autofiction has proliferated because I wrote a work of autofiction mm-hmm. and published it a couple of years ago. Your book made me understand my own work better. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. You know, but th- there are, I think, two strains or two arguments that I think you're making in your book as to why autofiction has been something that a lot of writers gravitate towards in the era of conglomeration. 
and I think you characterize it according to gender, where you say a lot of the men who write autofiction are writing in response to the the diminishment of the importance of literature in culture and to the diminishment of the power of the author, whereas a lot of women who write autofiction are writing against the patriarchal structure of publishing and the world in general. Is that, that an accurate characterization of what you what you wrote? That is, yeah. Especially in the earlier years of autofiction, 70s, 80s, 90s, but it still maintains today. Yeah, I mean, you have like, what is it? Vonnegut, Mailer. John Barth. You know, there's a whole... Yeah, all those kinds of like names that we know. And then you have the heirs to that tradition, like Canalsgaard, uh, Rachel Cusk, uh, Sheila Hetty, Ben Lerner. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole there's a whole range. But I think uh, that's another thing your book does is it kind of draws out the reasons why writers write the stuff that they do. And it also, I think, gets into uh, a really like a really as full as you can, as full as you can write it. I mean, it's a very big story. And I think you kind of flag this in the introduction that you can't tell it all, you know, this is kind of a, a beginning and you, and you express hope that other writers in the future will sort of take the baton and keep telling this story. But it gave me as somebody who's very interested in this stuff, a great window into the history of contemporary literary publishing in this country. And I think the hinge moment in the story that you're telling that you sort of go back to throughout the course of the book is the firing of Andre Schifrin. And can you just explain to my listeners, first of all, who Andre Schifrin was and why his firing from uh, as the editorial director at Pantheon was, in your view, so significant to the history of conglomeration and publishing? Yes. Pantheon is a really important publishing house in the United States and the history of American literature. It's now run by the fantastic Lisa Lucas, and it was run for many years by Andre Schifrin, whose father was one of the founders of the press. Schifrin came to the position of editorial director in the early 1960s. He was fleeing the conglomeration that happened at New American Library. Uh, New American Library, after it was bought by Times Mirror, Times Mirror brought in McKinsey, the consultancy, and they started giving a lot more power to marketing and sales and taking it away from editorial. And so a lot of editors who included Andre Schifrin and Yale Doctorow were both editors at New American Library who who fled. Um, And Schifrin went to his father's house and became the editorial director where he led nearly three decades of an incredible publishing program. He brought Michel Foucault to the United States, the um, E.P. Thompson, the great British historian, Eric Hobsbawm. Uh, Studs Terkel uh, was one of Schifrin's kind of longest running and great writers, the Chicago historian of work and uh, ethnographer. He published fiction by... John Berger and Marguerite de Ra, Julio Cortazar, bringing world literature and translation to the United States, which has always been hard to do. So many people looked to Pantheon and saw many literary people in the United States, many people in publishing looked to Pantheon and said, you know, Schifrin is doing God's work. This is someone who's really smart, who's publishing incredibly well. 
and he had a great deal of respect in the industry. And he had that position for so long because he had the support of the longstanding president of Random House, an uh, incredible guy named Bob Bernstein. Bernstein was who hired Toni Morrison in the first place to Random House. He was beloved by everyone I've heard of who ta- who worked for him uh, or knew him. He did a lot of stuff with human rights uh, in literature as well. And he was a buffer between Random House and its conglomerate owners for decades. And finally, Cy Newhouse was a media tycoon who owned Random House in the 80s, fired Bob Bernstein. So Bernstein was no longer there to protect Schifrin. And he brought in Alberto Vital, uh, who was uh, an Italian with a PhD in economics, who'd come from working in the car company Fiat and the the typewriter company Olivetti. He'd had a little bit of, of, of a background in books by the time he came to Random House, but his job was to come in and do what conglomeration needed to do for shareholder value. So one of his first orders of business was to look at Schifrin's budgets and tell Schifrin to shape up. And Schifrin said, I've been doing this for a long time. I know what I'm doing. It works and I'm going to keep doing it. The two did not come to an agreement and Vital fired Schifrin. This led to an explosion of sentiment in New York City. Uh, there was a protest outside Random House headquarters. You had Kurt Vonnegut, Studs Terkel, Oliver Sacks, Barbara Ehrenreich, and a couple hundred others marching with placards outside of Random House headquarters demanding that Schifrin be reinstated. You had op-eds written in the New York Times by people from the Pantheon staff who had quit. His entire editorial staff quit uh, in mass. And it was the point of discussion for months in the publishing business, because it wasn't just Schifrin for people. It was, many felt like, this turning point in the history of conglomeration, something that people had been bristling against, worried about for several decades. At this moment in February 1990, um, it felt like a capitulation. It felt like uh, 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 the powers were really being weighted towards conglomeration now at the firing of Schifrin in a way that they hadn't been before. And I do think we see a different literary history after that. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that had been building and it feels like this was when it kind of exploded. You write about E.L. Doctorow making kind of grave pronouncements, I believe, at like an award ceremony. Forgive me if I have the details wrong. The National Book Critics Circle Awards. Yeah. And so... There were a lot of people who were close to these centers of power in particular who could feel this building. Mm-hmm. And then Schifrin was the fall guy who sort of, at least in your view, really was most emblematic of it turning for the worse, especially when it comes to the publication of fiction. I think that's where a lot of your book focuses in terms of the consequences of conglomeration, like the kinds of stories that get published and then the kinds of authors who previously enjoyed the support and protection of the bigger publishers no longer do. The environment is much different today for writers who are writing literary fiction than it was in, say, the mid-century, the mid-20th century. And one of the more heartbreaking aspects of this book is like reading about the kind of golden age, <laughs> you know, where a book could sell, what is it, 6,000 copies and be in the black and there were fewer books published, 
fewer bookstores. It was just a more manageable market, it seemed like. And there was a system in place that could actually support writers. I mean, this was also, we should add, an era in which writers could write for magazines Mm -hmm. and write short stories and publish them in magazines and earn a living and like buy a home. (laughs) Like, it's just so wild to even contemplate. But We've definitely we've definitely fallen far from that. There's two things I'd say about that. One, I think one reason that was possible is because of the great economic boom that was happening in the United States in the 50s and 60s that was bringing more equitable prosperity across the country. It was a time when there was much less inequality than we have now. And there was a huge burgeoning number of readers. You had all these soldiers coming back from World War II on the GI Bill, going to college. And you had colleges and universities opening up to women and to people of color. And this vast growth of prosperity and university graduates was creating a huge body of readers. And so it was a time of terrific growth for books. And in the 70s, with inflation and unemployment and the beginnings of the wage, wage stagnation that leads us to the present, you know, these are some of the, the big economic conditions that were, were pushing these trends. But also, the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of things that were good about books if you were a white guy. Right. It was really, right. it was a real, like, it's still a patriarchal industry, but women have had a lot of success in the last 40 years gaining positions of power in publishing. That was not the case in the 50s and 60s. And it was a deeply sexist industry. And of course, incredibly white. So when it comes to mass market publishing, which you write about in the first chapter of the book, these are publishers like Pocket, Dell, Bantam, the aforementioned New American Library, and Fawcett. Can you forgive me to try to place this in a chronology? When did mass market become a thing? Because that was a big shift in publishing. A huge shift, a huge shift. Because until mass market books, it was hard if you were in most of the United States to get your hands on a book. Bookstores were mostly, most densely located in, on the East Coast. If you were in an East Coast city, you could get a book. If you were in much of the rest of the country, Bookstores were few and far between, and people were reading magazines. These were the years of the pulps. This is when genres were forming through science fiction magazines and mystery magazines, romance and westerns. And those what are what had mass market distribution. It was in 1939 uh, that Pocket Books launched. Uh, and what they did is they launched on the back of the of the pulp magazine distribution networks. So these weren't going to bookstores. They were going to railroad stations. They were going to drugstores. They were going to little corner kiosks, um, newsstands. So that's how you start going from books being published in runs of 5, 10, 15,000 to books being published in runs of 100, 200, 300,000. Just a vast expansion of American readership of books which then kind of put put a lot of the pulps ultimately out of business, but also made books available. You know, they started reprinting all these classics that were in the public domain. They also started making mass market books out of William Faulkner. Uh, They took some of William Faulkner's more salacious material and slapped smutty covers on them and sold 800,000 copies, a million copies 
of Faulkner, who had, you know, he was not the name then that he is now. He was just about to win the Nobel Prize, uh, which resuscitated his career. He was someone who had been selling, you know, a few thousand copies and was known by the literati, but was certainly not a household name. And then they go and sell a million copies on the mass market. So that's a product of the 1940s and the 1950s. And in that period, the mass market, one motivation of, of mass mar- some mass market editors was to get what we think of now as high literary books into everybody's hands. And so we did not have this division that we have today of literary fiction and popular commercial genre fiction. Um, everything was kind of mixed together and people were sending all of it out everywhere. And you would find Faulkner next to Mickey Spillane, who was one of these lowbrow pulpy writers. It was kind of all all there. It seems like a healthier ecosystem. In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. And like, you know, we're going to be jumping in time here, but on a related note, and I think it's it's in the same chapter, you make a very interesting point that before 1980, prize winners often showed up on bestseller lists. And after 1980, this happens far less. Yes. I so, I think 1980 is, you know, we have, we have Schifrin in 1990 where you kind of see the 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 nails in the coffin. But 1980 is also a crucial turning point because of what happens in mass market books, which ripples out and touches everything else. What happens in mass market books around 1980 is you're having this demand for growth, this demand for quarterly growth. And the way that mass market books settle this problem when you've got people who have less money because their wages are stagnating and books are costing more because of inflation, but these publishers are being asked to make more money at the same time, it's this real troubled situation. It's a pickle if you're a publisher. The way they try to solve this problem and build in secure growth, the way they try to be able to have predictable quarterly quarterly growth is they do two things that are that are that that form the entire background for the ecosystem of publishing ever since. One thing they do is they build out their marketing departments, which until the 70s had been maybe a publicity gal. That was how they it was very gendered. It usually uh, it would be a woman, one woman, maybe a couple working in, in marketing and publicity. In the 70s, those expanded into departments and the women who ran them gained a lot more power in publishing houses in that expansion. And then they used that marketing and publicity power to leverage it into mega blockbuster names, brand names. This is when we get the coinage of the brand of Daniel Steele, the coinage of the brand of Stephen King. This is when Dean Kuntz becomes a big brand name. Shortly thereafter, we get Tom Clancy, John Grisham. Now you still see Grisham, Steele, and King are on the bestseller lists in 2023. It's still the world of books that emerged in the late in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, is still the world we're living in in that way. Getting these these people who, if you know they're going, if you know each book is going to sell a million copies, then you can bank on it. That's the first thing they did. The second thing Mass Market did around 1980 was they learned from Harlequin. Harlequin was this Canadian publisher that learned how to how to create and sell super profitable romance books. Romance grew a lot in the 1970s thanks to Avon and Harlequin, who 
rather than paying big advances, they would pay writers who were the hack writers, pe- uh, writers that were cheap, and they would put all the investment into making a product that was dependable, reliable, and built into a series through a genre that they knew readers would be interested in. And by doing this, by making series with unified covers, continuous characters, romance became the fastest growing genre of the 1980s. It grew by something like 30 or 40% in that decade. Um, And fantasy, the genre of fantasy, which didn't really exist as a popular genre until 1977, was the other one. And similar for similar reasons, Mass market publishers realized they could pay hack writers to do series, get people on the line to buy book after book, and they could count on the growth. And they had the book selling infrastructure to make it happen in the 1980s, because this is when you had chain bookstores in shopping malls in suburbs, Walden Books and B. Dalton, which is where moms and their tween children were shopping. And so the moms could buy the romance, the tweens could buy the fantasy. Publishing houses could count on getting those sales. They could predict it. And in 2023, what are the genres that dominate popular fiction? If you look at TikTok, BookTok, Wattpad, Kindle self-publishing, mass market books as they exist today, it's romance and fantasy even merged into what people call romanticy. And this is all a product of conglomeration in the mass market in the late 70s. And what about horror? Because, I mean, the Stephen King wrote that wave, obviously. That's another genre that really picked up in terms of its popular appeal, right? Anne Rice uh, with the vampire books and Stephen King, starting with Carrie, made horror into a popular genre starting in the late 70s in, into the 80s. It's never had quite the same level, quite the same scale uh, as fantasy and romance. Though I did just see on Twitter, Link and Michelle say that horror, uh, the the word out of Frankfurt right now might be that horror is the next boom we're going to see. Okay. I feel like it's already boomed, but (laughs) who knows? You know, the other thing I think that you write about in this chapter where, you know, you're talking about mass market and it's a two-part chapter, but you write about the rise of the super agent and the evolution of the way in which the literary agent functions in the business of publishing. This was fascinating to me. And I think you use as your exemplar of this stuff, Morton Janklau, who is like legendary literary super agent, agent to Danielle Steele, Judith Krantz, I believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, his list, there was like some line in the book where at like one point, you know, he he represented like five of the 10 authors who had the longest running stay on the bestseller list in a particular year. Mm -hmm. So this guy was representing mass, like authors with mass appeal and really dominating the business and using their popularity as leverage to get huge advances on a related note. And then I'll let you talk about Morton Janklau. Another part of this book that made me wince a little bit is reading about the money. <laughs> you know, some of the money that used to fly around, like you, Stephen King, the paperback rights for Carrie selling for what, $400,000 or something back in whatever year it was, 78. You know, you adjusted for inflation. Like that's a fuck ton of money. Oh, yeah. And in 1975, you have uh, E.L. Doctorow selling Ragtime, which, you know, he was a you know, kind of serious literary writer and Ragtime is a serious literary book. And it sold for 
what I think in 2023 dollars would be like 10 million or something in paperback rights, which is, I, I think adjusting for inflation is, or, or, or is maybe the most a literary book has, has, you know, I don't think anyone has ever matched it. Yeah. I want to say, I remember Charles Frazier got like $8 million for the follow-up to cold mountain and then it didn't earn out. Yeah. And that might be, that might be the last big one I can think of. I mean, it does happen, but it's few and far between. And Mort Janklau, in terms of the ways in which he is emblematic of the shift in the way the literary agent functions in the business, is a va- is very fascinating. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what those shifts were. Yeah. So agents have been around for a long, 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 long time, but they had a somewhat different function before Janklow. They worked more as mediators. They would help the publisher as much as they would help the author try to get the contracts written, take care of the business side of things. What happened in the 70s was there was this guy named William Sapphire, who was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. And he wrote a book that was a count of the Nixon presidency, and it was somewhat favorable towards Nixon. And he wrote it before Watergate and got uh, advance with his publisher before Watergate. But the book had not yet been published when Watergate happened. His publisher started to squirm. He's like, uh, you know, we might not publish this book. And Sapphire was friends with Janklow, who at that point hadn't, hadn't, hadn't worked in books. He was a corporate securities lawyer. He was a kid from Queens, came up from like a working class background, uh, you know, was in World War II, came back and and was running this high end corporate securities office and just happened to be friends with Sapphire. And Sapphire said, hey, can you do anything about this? And Janklow looked at it and he's like, I think I can. And he pressed the publishing house, which was forced to give Sapphire some of his, let, let Sapphire keep some of his advance, which doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time was a revelation because no one, no one knew that authors had the power to do that. Um, it was, uh, it, what it revealed to Janklow was that there was this untapped field of law that authors had more power than anyone realized. And it got him interested and he sold Sapphire's, not one of Sapphire's novels for a very, very large advance. And he realized that this was a game he could have a lot of fun playing. More and more people started coming to him to do work in books. And by the late 70s, most of his work was in literary agenting. And, you know, he was getting 25 queries a week. And he all the biggest names in popular fiction wanted to work with him. All the all the biggest names in prestigious fiction wanted to work with the new super agent, Andrew Wiley. And what both of them were doing is was saying, hey, there's all these conglomerates that actually are well-resourced, highly capitalized. We can squeeze them for more money. We can run auctions. We can get really big advances. We can get better contracts. And then agents became these forceful allies uh, of authors, which they had not been to this point. 
Yeah, like representing their interests as opposed to, like you said earlier, just being like a middleman essentially between the two. Well, there's so much to cover in this book, but in the interest of time, I want to jump ahead because I don't want to leave the conversation without talking about the response to conglomeration. Otherwise, I fear that many writers listening to this episode (laughs) might like leap off of a bridge or something because this is part of the story that you're telling. It's not just about the ways in which literary fiction as a key example has been altered and squeezed by the forces of conglomeration. It is also a story of the creative forces that have uh, like swung into action in response to conglomeration. And the place that I would like to begin is with nonprofits. This is in your telling one of, if not the first or first key responses to conglomeration, the formation of nonprofit publishers like Grey Wolf, Coffee House Press, Milkweed, Dalkey Archive. Can you just tell a little bit of that story in broad strokes? Yep. So there was no nonprofit publishing in the United States before conglomeration, and it emerged explicitly to contest conglomeration. And it happened first in Minnesota, almost by accident. You had a guy named Jim Sitter, who was this sort of bookseller, book distributor, and would-be impresario, who is this unsung character in literary history. I, he, I, through kind of sequence of events, his name came to me. I found him in the Grey Wolf archival papers coming up again and again and again. And then I was able to meet him and talk with him and interview him many times over and kind of get this deep story of what happened in Minnesota. Jim Sitter realized that there was, that plays and symphonies and operas were being funded by philanthropy and foundations and, and uh, the government. And he said, is this happening for books? Why isn't it happening for books? Could it happen for books? And he, th- there's, there's the accident that Jim Sitter asked these questions. And there's the purposeful bit of that he was in Minnesota where there was a strong base for funding the arts. And there were strong nonprofit arts movements in that state. And so he was able to go and figure out who's on the boards for all these nonprofits arts organizations. And he was able to start figuring out what those networks looked like, who he needed to talk to, and how he could potentially build a nonprofit literary movement. He ended up at dinner with the director of the Walker Art Center and Toni Morrison, both of whom at that time were on the board for the National Endowment for the Arts. He started picking their brains how to get NEA money. And he, because he was a book distributor, he was connected with the founder of Grey Wolf Press, which then existed in Port Townsend, Washington, and the founder of Toothpaste Press, which then existed in coffee uh, in uh, Iowa City and would move to Minnesota and become Coffee House Press. He was connected with Milkweed Editions and their founder, which was already in Minnesota. And he convinced Grey Wolf and Coffee House to come to Minnesota for the explicit purpose of becoming nonprofits, filing as nonprofits, Um, and developing this system that would make an alternative to the markets, to to free market pressure. Um, The thought was that if conglomerations are subduing literature increasingly to the demands of the market, let's give them some freedom. 
let's give them some leeway from those market pressures by getting some philanthropic money, and then we can do things differently. Now, philanthropic money comes with a different set of constraints, which we can talk about. You have to become mission-based. You've got a board of directors. You've got wealthy people who are giving you that money who you want to keep happy because you have to keep going back to that well. But it is a completely different set of constraints, which leads to a completely different kind of literature than that of the free market conglomerate world. So Jim Sitter brought Grey Wolf Coffee House and uh, worked with Milkweed to become nonprofits in Minnesota. They started building the model for what it could be. And then in the early 90s, Jim Sitter goes to New York City to CLMP, I believe that's the Council of Literary Magazines, Literary Magazines and, and Presses, yeah, yeah or Publishers. Yeah. And in that role, he gets connected with the Mellon Foundation and all this money that came from the founders of Reader's Digest after they died. And that's where he really starts to make nonprofits a national movement, bringing in a press that was called Sun and Moon, Dolphy Archive, and a number of others. And in the 90s, nonprofits become national and they are a thriving crucial function of the national literary conversation now in the US. Well, and they have significant money. I mean, this this is millions of dollars that pour into these previously tiny presses and in addition to the money, there is help in terms of creating the infrastructure, like the business infrastructure to help them scale. Mm-hmm. So, it's really significant help and it's a very interesting history to me. I, I was not fully aware. Like just learning about a guy like Jim Sitter, what an unsung hero mm-hmm. to figure out that game, to be the person who's kind of sitting at the nexus of nonprofit money and like backwoods independent publishing and to connect those dots. That's a particular person, you know? And what a vital person. You think about all the good work that has come out of, just as one example, Gray Wolf Press over the years. In the absence of Jim Sitter, what is it? You don't, it's really, really hard to say. It's hard to imagine that it would be anywhere near what it has become. This is one of the, the, the things that blew my mind the most in the years of writing this book are the contingencies of literary history, of all the things that might not have been, were it not for some person at some moment being in the right place and having an idea There's so many novels that might never have happened. And for the same reason, there's a lot of novels that maybe never did happen because the right person wasn't there. One person can change a lot of literary history in this country. I think the latter is more common than the former. I fear that there are many, many great novels that have never seen the light of day simply because they did not find their champion and the timing wasn't just right. And we'll get to a, a couple of examples in a minute. Uh, that I think people will be familiar with and interested in. But before we get there, I want to talk about a line in the chapter uh, on nonprofits from, I believe it was Ralph Ellison, who obviously an author, but also an appointee on the National Council on the Arts. And just talking about the history of this country and its relationship to the arts. And there is it is pointed out that our founders would have likely been hostile to the idea that the arts uh, would have any kind of relationship to democracy or the shoring up of democracy. And Ellison makes the point that 
the arts, literary arts in particular, can help to reduce frictions caused by the many differences that exist within the United States with all of its diversity and all of its different competing interests and communities. I think that's accurate. And I think that the kinds of work that nonprofit publishers do, especially, you know, as you said, they have a mission. In many cases, the mission these days is to diversify and to bring in work in translation and to publish more writers of color and people from marginalized communities. And it's critical, I think, that these kinds of stories be told. And it's the, the ideal scenario is that these kinds of stories would find their way into the hands of people who are not from those communities <laughs> to help kind of bridge divides. And that seems like the truth to me. I, I am in agreement with Ellison. I think it's a very important point. And I think our founders might have missed uh, you know, that particular aspect of the arts in terms of how they relate to the sustaining of democracy and a peaceable, diverse America. Yeah, I I agree. And I want to add a caveat. Yeah. I think Ellison's vision is utopian. And I think what happens in practice is fascinatingly a little tweak on what Ellison's vision was. So conglomerate houses, when they publish diverse writers, writers of color, have certain kinds of expectations of what they, what kinds of stories by, by writers of color they're happy to publish. There's a tendency to want stories about historical trauma, about the performance of a kind of almost anthropological authenticity of identity. So that's on the commercial side. And there's room for the nonprofits, some of the great work that they can do that you, as you mentioned, is they can give space to writers of color writing stories that aren't these narrow prescriptive kinds of stories that tend to make it through on the commercial side. But there's an, I found that there's a kind of fascinating movement that happens for a writer like Percival Everett at Grey Wolf, where he publishes again and again with Grey Wolf, or a fascinating movement with Karen T. Yamashita, one of the great writers who publishes with Coffee House, where these are publishers that are mission-driven. One of their missions is to publish diverse writers. If you're a diverse writer, if you're a Percival Everett or a Karen T. Yamashita, one of the things that just becomes structurally inevitable it's just kind of inevitably the case is that you become, you serve that, that publisher as a writer of color. Your identity is serving the mission. If you're a, a writer like Everett or Yamashita, you chafe a little bit at the idea of serving a publisher through your identity. So what they end up doing in novels like Percival Everett's incredible novel Erasure, which is being turned into a film by Cord Jefferson called American Fiction. The trailer just came out and it looks great. Um, oh, with Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, with Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, that's uh, it's based on Erasure. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's interesting the way these systems sort of, the way they work, like the way they unfold. You know, you have these, um, like you say, caveats to the fact that these missions, which on the face are idealistic and noble, also create their own kinds of conundrums, you know, for the people who are, who are writing uh, within these systems. And they do, they do great things with it. So Tropic of Orange by Yamashita is a, a book I adore. And it's a book Coffee House 
um, wanted Yamashita to write. It's a it's an LA comedy about multiculturalism, and she satirizes in a kind of cynical fashion the performance of identity for a white audience within the novel. And so there's this doubled layeredness where you know within the novel she's staging the her own dilemma of performing an identity for a, for a, a white liberal audience, which it, it is, is something we need for democracy. And it also is something that she's able to make a little bit more complicated, make a joke out of, make funny and kind of poke some at some of our pretensions perhaps. So this it's uh, it, 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 one of the things it does is it, it allows people to make great art. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's net positive in my view. I think if you really sussed it out and you did, uh, did you do like a computational study of nonprofit publishing and the fiction produced by nonprofit publishers? You say in the book that they tend to privilege embodiment, craft, and localism. Yes. Yeah, I I did a study where I used machine learning to take novels, several hundred novels by by uh, conglomerate publishers and a couple hundred by nonprofit publishers and see if the machine learning could suss out some sort of systematic difference between the two. And the nonprofit publishers focus on just what you said, these qualities of embodiment of like what it feels like to be a person in a body that other scholars have shown this is what differentiates fiction from any other kind of writing, from biography, from memoir, from other kinds of nonfiction. What fiction specializes in is this quality of the sensual language of what does something smell like? What does something feel like? What does something look like? And it's the nonfiction books that double down on this like sensual quality of being fiction, the fiction, fictional, the, the I don't know, literariness of literature. And then the by contrast, the conglomerate publishers, the big publishers tend to privilege law and power, bureaucracy, and dispositions. Uh, it sounds more depressing. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a, there's there's some of that that's that's genre. You know, it's like legal procedurals or mysteries or thrillers. But there's also some of that that I think is what I was saying about write what you know, if you're writing in a conglomerate house, and if everyone involved in that conglomerate house has somehow got their fingerprint on this, then the most immediate context for where that work is written is in a big bureaucracy. And I think some of those elements kind of make their way by osmosis into the work. And the last point I want to make it's uh, about nonprofits has to do with representation. I mean, we've been talking about authors of color writing within this particular publishing ecosystem. And I want to say that if you you did a study or looked at some sort of numbers and nonprofit publishing lists were 70% white versus conglomerate publishing, which was 93% white over the same time span. So the point is nonprofit publishers better on the issue of race, but still like vast majority white authors on those lists. Yes. And this, you know, just to be clear, this is like from the, I don't know, 80s through the 2000s. We're in a moment since 2020 of of opening towards diversification of race in publishing. You want to, I think, because there's been moments in the past of opening that have quickly closed and gone back to the status quo, we want to be very careful. 
about how optimistic we are, but we are definitely in a moment where the kinds of narratives and the number of narratives by people of color that are being published uh, are increasing. We've got a spate uh, actually of of, of uh, well-received novels or widely received novels like Yellowface by R.F. Quang, Luster by Raven Leilani, The Other Black Girl, uh, which has become a Hulu show that are specifically about being a person of color working in a publishing house, like a very specific kind of novel, um, and about the difficulty of that and how working in a publishing house is difficult if you're not white. And those are stories now being published by large publishing houses, uh, which, you know, was not possible previously. So there's change, uh, and it's interesting to watch what's what's happening uh, in this moment. So... In another section of the book, you talk about the indies, the independents, and in particular, W.W. Norton, which is an anomaly in the modern publishing environment as a big for-profit press that avoided conglomeration. Can you tell my listeners why? Like, why did W.W. Norton avoid while everyone else got folded into these giant like holding companies or whatever? It's a wild anachronistic story. Uh, there's two reasons why W.W. Norton managed to stay independent until today uh, as the largest independent publisher, trade publisher in the United States. One is that its founder, whose name was W.W. Norton, died relatively young and his wife was left to figure out what to do with the company. And she sold it to the employees and it became an employee-owned cooperative. The second thing that happened was that W.W. Norton created its Norton anthologies. Anyone who has ever been a college student in a literature classroom is likely to have come across a Norton anthology or a Norton critical edition. The, uh, these have a special place in the curriculum for English majors. Uh, and this has been a great source of continuity and profit for W.W. Norton. They've got this relationship with higher education, which one of their presidents told me in an interview, it works something like a philanthropist for a nonprofit. Um, they can count on the fact that these anthologies and critical editions are regularly going to sell and they're going to do the kind of business that is going to free Norton up to do some more interesting creative things on its trade side with, with its fiction and its poetry lists. And so that means the combination of those two things, the fact that it's always got a secure profitability and it's employee owned, means that any time a conglomerate has come around and they've come around to try to buy W.W. Norton, its employees can always say, look, we're invested in this company. We want it to do what it's been doing. We're not interested. Goodbye. Well, you talk about a couple of big editors. There's Gary Fiskett John, who is at Vintage Contemporaries. So not at W.W. Norton uh, in this chapter, right, on mm -hmm. the independence. Well, like, can you just talk a little bit about Gary and his uh, importance, especially when it comes to like trade paperback, right? I mean, the proliferation of trade paperback, as, especially as a vehicle for literary fiction. Yes, I talk about Gary in this chapter because he is a peer contemporary of Jerry Howard, um, and the two of them, uh, Gary Fiskett John was at Vintage Contemporaries as Jerry Howard was at Contemporary American Fiction at Penguin, which was, which were, were the two main trade paperback houses competing for sway in the early 1980s, which was this really fabulous 
moment. And um, Jerry Howard goes on to be at WW Norton and do a lot of really important things there. So that's how Fiskit John ends up in this chapter. Fiskit John came to Random House uh, in the early 80s. And that was a dark moment for people trying to publish prestigious fiction. Things had dropped off precipitously since the mid-70s. So in the late 70s and early 80s, it became, this is the moment when the mass markets were booming with fantasy and romance series. And you had the big brand names getting all this marketing power. And it was really tough if you're Cormac McCarthy or Richard Ford or Tom McGuane to sell many books. And part of this too is because of the chokehold that the chain stores started to have on acquisitions where a place like Walden Books would typically only buy for its national stores if it was going to buy 2,000 copies. And it would only typically buy uh, 10% of a total print run. So that means a book needed to have a print run of 20,000 or more uh, if Walden Books was going to seriously think about acquiring it for its national stores. Very, very few works of literary fiction had an initial print run of 20,000. It'd be more like 5,000 in hardback. So, and, and they wouldn't make it to paperback is the point. They would get out there in, in hardcover and they wouldn't sell and that would be it. And that would be it. That would be it. Because, you know, if you're not getting picked up by Walden Books, then, you know, that cuts off one major uh, retail source. And then, yeah, you're not selling, you're not selling out, and then you're not going to paperback, and then you're done. Um, and that was the case in the late 70s and early 80s for a lot of literary writers. And Fiskit John was the one who had uh, the revelation that helped change that. He was looking at what Jerry Howard and... Um, I'm blanking. Robert on... Robert Weil or no, it wasn't 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 Weil. It was uh, 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 the woman who was Howard's boss at Penguin, who worked with him on the Contemporary American Fiction series. Gary Fiskichon saw what they were doing. They were doing reprints, but they were doing it stylishly. They were doing it successfully, and he was like, "What if I did trade paperback originals? That way, I could." do a, a, an original run, don't have to do the hardback, I can start with 20,000 or more in paperback, and let's make it a flashy series, let's do a cool thing with the covers, where you know, this is the early days of MTV, and he's like, let's make it like the MTV generation of covers. And so, and he was buddies with this guy from Williams College, the two of them were disciples of, of, of Raymond Carver, and his buddy was this young hotshot, they lived together in the Lower East Side, and they thought, hey, we'll, we'll blast the series open with a book by Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City. That was his buddy. Yeah. So Gary Fiskajon and Jay McInerney were like college friends. College buddies. And Fiskajon was like, all right, McInerney, like, this is it. We're going to do this. And McInerney at first was like, why I, I wanted on hardback. I mean, having your book first out in hardback was like, uh, a, a status thing. It was a point of distinction. And so Fiskajon had to convince McInerney, like, no, you got to, you got to understand the strategy the, that I'm trying to do this thing to get around the limits of the hardback right now. And it's going to be like, no one's doing this. No one's doing trade back paperback originals. It's like, I think we've got an opportunity here to do something different and splashy that could blow up. And it did blow up. And Bright Lights Big City was huge. And it and suddenly everyone wanted to either resuscitate 
quiet trade paperback series or start their own trade paperback series. And it created a moment in the mid 80s where you this was when Jerry Howard at Penguin with Contemporary American Literature brought on this other young writer to kind of be the counterpoint to Bright Lights, Big City, which was Broom of the System by David Foster Wallace. And you have this moment where you have a lot of young writers that were in a system that was kind of blocked up for five or six years where not a lot was happening, suddenly revitalized. Um, and, and Fisket John was really the one who kind of started, sparked that whole thing. Revitalized by these trade paperback originals, right. giving writers who are writing edgier, more literary stuff, an opportunity to get their books out in wide distribution without maybe so much market pressure on them. Like the performance pressure is maybe a little bit less when you're not publishing in hardcover and absorbing those costs and so on and so forth. And Jerry Howard, uh, you know, as, as you've been talking about, is a key figure in this chapter. He goes on to Norton and kind of creates what you characterize as like the house of misfits. Like that's where with Norton being the biggest independent press that is not conglomerate to this day, it was the house where writers like Walter Mosley, Patrick O'Brien, who are genre writers with a kind of literary panache were able to find success. You also write about uh, Irvine Welsh and Chuck Palahniuk landing with Norton and with Jerry Howard. And this is where I want to circle back to what you were talking about earlier with respect to timing and with respect to writers needing a champion. It's at this point unthinkable that a book like Train Spotting or a book like Fight Club wouldn't exist in the culture, right? They're so well known. But it was far from a sure thing. And nobody was touching work by these guys, at least in the States. Mm -hmm. And Jerry Howard blessed these books and is the reason why they became what they became, or a a huge reason why they became what they became. It's such an important thing to remember in terms of how this stuff happens, especially when it happens for books that don't have a really clear like niche or market appeal, you know, something that's doing something weird like fight club or train spotting. I mean, train spotting, I mean, the dialect, it's this Scottish, you know, it's very, it's not something that you would imagine American readers are going to lap up. And yet it's Jerry Howard told me that, you know, that he was in a lot of trouble when he started reading train spotting because he liked it. And he thought, I'm going to have a really hard time selling this to my boss. (laughs) And because he was at Norton and because he had a good relationship with the president of the company and because they could do books that were riskier without putting a lot of money into them, um, he was able to get away with it. So, you know, he, he, he got advances for fight club and for train spotting of, I think, you know, four or five, $6,000, which is so little money. Like, Palahniuk would like would not tell people for years and years and years how much his advance was for Fight Club because he was embarrassed. Like it's the kind of money that a lot of places would offer you to kind of shame you to go away. Like it's it's you know you you spend years writing a book and you're going to make six thousand dollars off like you know however many years you spent writing that book. 
$6,000, by the way, for a lot of indie authors sounds high these days, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I mean, it's a, it's a tough business, but I take your point. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it means that they're not planning on investing much in you. You know, it's, it's, if, if a company is going to put the kind of marketing behind you that is, that's going to be signaled by how much they offer you in the advance. And so if they offer you a small advance, that's probably going to offer you small marketing. I mean, if it's, it's, we can talk about like the really exciting stuff that's happening in the 2020s in small press world, where I do think, you know, there are, there are advances that are in the, 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 you know, thousands that are like low like that, but don't have the same negative connotations because there's a really kind of wonderful community-based uh, growth of a lot of, a, a lot of nice nonprofits and indies now. But, but in the conglomerate world, like 6,000 is, is, is a pittance, but Howard was able to go to his editorial board and go to the president and say, Hey, like, I just, my gut tells me this is, I just want to do this for myself. And the guy who was running the, the um, editorial list at the time, star Lawrence, who I interviewed as well, uh, said that he, if he, if he had his druthers, he would burn every copy of fight club. He hates it. That is absolutely disgusted by the book and, you know, doesn't think it should exist. And yet, Jerry Howard was able to publish it under Star Lawrence, in part because of Norton's ability to do weird things. And that's that's kind of the story that I, as you say, that I want to tell about this place, is that editors can have a bit of, more of an uh, idiosyncratic view of what literature can do at Norton than they could at any of the big conglomerate presses. Well, just any time an editor, especially an editor who's not like the head editor, can take a chance on something that he or she believes in that feels like a, you know, they feel a personal connection to this is, I think too rare, especially in conglomerate publishing where my understanding of it is you have an editorial meeting where you essentially have to arrive at some consensus, like not only among the editorial staff, but also among the marketing people. And and it's like just this division between star Lawrence and Jerry Howard when it comes to Fight Club or it comes to train spotting, but I guess Fight Club in particular, Jerry loves it. Star thinks every single copy of it should be burned. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how mm-hmm. often is there consensus on any book among any group of people? It's an absurd criterion to uh, use to evaluate whether or not a book should be published. You almost, I, I think you're better off having people who are good book people who care about books having some autonomy to select the material that moves them most in an authentic way, like to get consensus. I mean, come on, this is a, that's a crazy way to make books. It's a, it's view. a, it's a conservative way to make books too, because you're gonna, you're, you're not going to take risks. Right. And this is, this is one of the things that one of maybe the, the kind of unfortunate thing of conglomeration is that is the, is the, is the way that it makes taking risks something you're less and less and less likely to do and you're building in systems towards predictability, safety, making the most rational decisions, which means, yeah, if one person loves it and one person hates it, it's probably not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Well, then cheers to the independent presses and the nonprofits that are going to fill the gap, hopefully, and publish books in a more interesting way and 
give a home to these books that are kind of operating on the margins. Uh, before we leave, I, I guess in closing, we should note that we still live in the age of conglomeration. And I, I believe, in fact, you say uh, in the conclusion chapter of the book, we are more in the conglomerate era than ever. So this is not something that is receding. It is not something that's receding. Um, in fact, we just saw Simon & Schuster be acquired by a uh, private equity firm, KKR, <laughs> which right. uh, previously loaded down Toys R Us with so much debt that it finally imploded. It's an open question what exactly this is going to mean for Simon & Schuster, uh, but it certainly keeps us very much ensconced in the conglomerate era. But the backlash of the small presses in the third decade of the 21st century has been very heartening to see. We have wonderful nonprofits like Deep Vellum in Dallas or Hub City in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The continuation of Coffee House and Grey Wolf and Milkweed still doing great work. We have places like Transit publishing Nobel laureate Jan Fossa. Uh, we have New York Review Books doing their incredible list. So there's hope in the incredible small presses that are finding a way to reach a readership and publish this lively, wild literature that doesn't have a home in the, the conglomerates who, who do still dominate the industry. Well, for people listening, Dan and I have touched upon a number of things that his book uh, deals in, but far from all of it. There's a lot to this story. And you should, if you're interested in this stuff, you should read the book to kind of get the fuller picture. I am grateful to you for the time. I appreciate this conversation and the work that you did. This is a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I can imagine it was a heavy lift in terms of research and interviews and trying to piece this thing together because it's like trying to piece together like a vast tapestry and then to hammer it into a narrative that is palatable to a reader, you know, so that a casual reader can understand it. So kudos to you for your labor. Thank you. And thank you for the time on the podcast. It's, it's really a, a pleasure. Okay, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Dan Sinekin. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. It is out there now from Columbia University Press. You can find Dan on the internet at dansinekin.com. Follow him on social media, Twitter, and Facebook. One more time, the book is called Big Fiction. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. And if you love the show, if you had a good experience, join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a minute and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like some Other People gear, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can get that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Last but not least, a quick plug for my latest book, a novel entitled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So check it out. It's my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
Okay, so coming up on Friday, another flashback episode where I dig into the Other People archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Justin Torres, National Book Award finalist for his new novel entitled Blackouts. That one is out on Farrar Strauss and Giroux. A great conversation with Justin Torres coming up on Sunday. So stay tuned.